You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Welcome to Chicago Humanities, where we create experiences through culture. Creativity. Enjoy the best moments of our events and conversations with our new culture-filled podcast, Chicago Humanities Tapes. Find us on your favorite podcast platform. We encourage you to share on social media and tag at ShyHumanities. Become a member. Members get discounts, access to exclusive opportunities, and make our programs possible and accessible for everyone. Thank you. Learn more at chicagohumanities.org. Thank you for joining us. Please silence your devices and enjoy the program. Hi, everybody, and welcome. My name is Chris Simmons. I'm the senior programmer here at Chicago Humanities. Over the last few years, our world has seen a pandemic, increased political tensions at home and abroad, and a divide that still exists within our families, communities, and workplaces. While it is common to work within our institutions, governments, and science to heal these wounds, our guest tonight proposes a different approach, a spiritual revolution, or soul boom, as he calls it, as one solution to some of our world's most pressing problems. Rain is very excited to tell you all about his new book, Soul Boom. And if you haven't already, I encourage you all to get a pre-signed copy at the seminary co-op table just outside this room. 
While we'll hear about ways to improve our spiritual health, Rain isn't feeling well and will be unable to take photos in order to protect everyone's physical health. But as you listen to today's conversation, keep any questions you have for our speakers in mind. Towards the end of the discussion, our house staff will roam the audience, giving you the opportunity to directly ask Rain and Kelly your questions. Before I introduce our speakers this evening, I'd like to thank our season sponsors, the Builders Initiative and the Robert R. McCormick Foundation for making this program possible. Kelly Leonard is the Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at Second City, and he'll moderate our discussion tonight. He oversaw Second City's live theatrical divisions for over 20 years, working with talents such as Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, Keegan-Michael Key, and others. His book, Yes And, was published to critical acclaim by HarperCollins, and he hosts a podcast of the same name for WGN Radio, which is being taped live for tonight. Rain Wilson is an Emmy Award-winning actor best known for his role as Dwight Schrute on NBC's The Office. In addition to his many other comedic and dramatic roles on stage and screen, he is the co-founder of the media company Soul Pancake and host of the Peacock docuseries Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss, which premieres this summer. Rain is also the co-author of Soul Pancake, Chew on Life's Big Questions, and an author of The Bassoon King, My Life in Art, Faith, and Idiocy. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Kelly Leonard and Rain Wilson. Look at these giant microphones. These are big. We got a big box on our microphones. Big microphone. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We got it. That's what she said. First, with like first, right off the bat. Twelve seconds in. Twelve seconds in. But seriously, you could do some reps with these. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, Rain. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for being here. I didn't win an Emmy. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I think. You were nominated for how many Emmys? Like three. 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 And Jeremy Piven. Uh, Two words. Chicago native. No, I know. Jeremy Piven. I mean, you, you lived in Chicago or near Chicago for a bit. I did. I did for a little bit. But you're not a Chicago native. I'm, I'm, I'm a Seattle native, but I... One person from Seattle. Yeah, and, thank you. But I... I would say that my two and a half to three most formative years were here in Chicago, and I would not have ever become an actor were it not for a new Trier High School. Which I believe we were there at the same time. Get out. Yeah. Class of 84. Yeah. Wait. You were a new Trier at the sa- yeah. in the same year? Yeah. How did I not know that? Uh, were you in the smoking area a lot? Never. <laughs> okay, well. Thanks. I was with the drama kids. <laughs> and I was going from the smoking area to the soccer field to the smoking area. Oh. Those two things don't Well, my, very my well. coach did not think they went together. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So normally when I'm doing my podcast uh, and I've read the book of, of the, the author, <clears throat> my first question tries to sum up 
what I felt when I put the book down. And I couldn't settle on one, so I have three. All right, okay. are you okay with this? I'm gonna ask yeah. you three, three questions. So one of the things that I do in my job is that businesses hire me to come talk to their employees about my work and how it connects to the work they do. Uh, so I understand that I quickly must explain to them why the guy who hired Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey would be standing in front of them to do this. And I offer that the same skills that made stars at all these folks at Second City are the skills that they can use to become stars of their domains, like better performers, collaborators, innovators. Similarly, you get to this right away in your new book, Soul Boom, when you ask, and you write, quote, let me be blunt with you, dear reader. I know what you might be asking right now. Why the hell is the actor who played Dwight on The Office writing a book about spirituality? <laughs> yep. Can you answer that? That's it. I still can't answer that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Where do I pick up my check? <laughs> I'm really trying to fight, not going, that's a soul boom after every one of these. Yeah. <laughs> boom. Soul boom. <laughs> um, okay, so let me try. Uh, I should develop, this is like one of the very first stops on this book tour, by the way. Okay. And, and I'm already sick as a dog. So yeah. how did that happen? Um, I will say that uh, spiritual concepts, ideas, uh, mysticism, religious studies has always been a great passion of mine. Mm -hmm. I'm kind, I kind of have an inner Oprah. Yeah. Chicago native. Um, <laughs> I grew up uh, in a family that were members of the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. We're all familiar with the Baha'i temple up north there. So one of the things Baha'is are most known for is the kind of universalist acceptance of all of the different paths toward God and the different holy books of the world's religions. So in my household, we would have Buddhists over sitting in their robes. You know, when born-again Christians would knock on the door in the, on Sunday mornings, you know, at the watchtowers, we would invite them in and cook them pancakes and talk about the Bible. Our books, our bookshelves were filled with books about... Um, you know, Egyptian mysticism and Sufism and Sikhism. So this idea of talking about spiritual ideas from um, a panoply of religious uh, ba uh, backgrounds and fonts was very much just a part of what it was like growing up for me. For a lot of people, it's sports. Like their dad's always watching sports and they're talking about hockey and mm -hmm. players and, you know... Um, Mike Ditka, Chicago native. Yeah, and, you're, um, you're killing it on the references. I'm, I'm, I'm really no, delivering the really Chicago good. connection. Yeah. Just, that's, what it, that's what it said to get the audience to like you, to reference. Yes. Um, so there's that. And then uh, I, I guess, too, um, I have talked about this a lot, but I had a great many struggles, mental health struggles in my life. Mm -hmm. And back in the 90s, when you and I were having some mental health struggles, they didn't call them mental health struggles. They did not call them They're that. They're just then. like, Kelly, you're f***ed up. Yep. Indeed. Um, so, but anxiety attacks and uh, crippling anxiety, depression, uh, addiction issues, uh, loneliness, alienation, you name it. Um, and I had discarded the Baha'i faith 
and the, the faith of my, my parents because I wanted to go to New York and be an actor and I didn't want any of that morality nonsense hanging around or God or, or anything like that. And so I started an ex- a much deeper, more personal exploration of these ideas because somehow inside of me, in my gut sense, I knew that there were answers to be found in spirituality that could help me and steer me aright and help give my life meaning, purpose, resonance, bliss. And so it was also deeply personal to study these things, not just a cerebral exercise, but that there might be gems to be found in the Vedas, Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapadas, that might actually help my life. I know, I was trying to figure out where the laugh was coming from. What's that? I was trying to figure out where the laugh was coming from. Yeah. <laughs> Dhammapadas, Upanishads, the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, okay. I see. Okay. Yeah. This is not going to work. Okay. <laughs> The transcriber is getting bigger laughs than I am. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, no. And I love, too, it's in parentheses, laughter. All right. So you guys are getting transcribed as well. That's great. So I would say the other thing, though, as a comic actor, that this isn't incongruent in my experience working with people, and I'll just use Colbert, who is very... Uh, spiritual, religious, thoughtful about this work, always has been. And, and over my time at Second City, I think that whether it's sort of the clown persona or the truth teller in terms of the satiric aspect of Second City, that um, I think many of the artists who end up on stage there doing comedy uh, feel that they are also performing a kind of service. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. I think that it's something that I wrestled with and struggled with early on in my kind of television acting career as I was reinvestigating and recommitting to the faith of my youth, but also kind of, you know, massaging and studying these spiritual concepts. Um, I was like, well, I'm on a sitcom. How does, that, mm-hmm. how does that mesh? And I remember when we started this, I started this digital media company called Soul Pancake that was a YouTube channel and social media channel, and we did a lot of inspiring, uplifting content. That was kind of its purpose. And remember, Ed Helms said to me, like, what, what's this soul pancake? I'm like, well, it's trying to combine kind of art and spirituality. And he said, hmm, aren't those mutually exclusive? <laughs> and and, I, and I, I was kind of flummoxed, and, and, but it goes to right to what you said. Like, as I, as I dug deeper in that, I realized, like, no, not only are they not mutually exclusive, but they are integrated uh, beyond measure. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are so many aspects of uh, being an entertainer, of being an artist that are intimately connected to being uh, a a person of a deep faith wisdom. You're a storyteller. You are giving a service. Making people laugh is one of the greatest services you can do. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, And uh, but 
uh, it's, it, it, brings, it brings people together. Uh, you talked about the shaman. I think there's mm-hmm. something about, I write in the book a little bit about actor as shaman, yep. as soothsayer, as truth teller. I'm not claiming Dwight Schrute is a, is a shaman, but there is a, uh, there's a something deeply miraculous about the transformation of an actor into, into various characters. There's something ineffable and completely mysterious about how that works. You know, when I watch some of the great performances, I'm, I'm awed at what's happening on the stage or, or on the screen. I talk in the book a little bit uh, about, and I hope I'm not preempting all your... You've got a lot of questions there. Go with, go with. Um, I talk about one of my favorite artists of all time is the medieval Japanese haiku poet named Basho. Mm-hmm. And Basho is considered like the greatest haiku poet of all time. And uh, he has a book called A Narrow Road to the Interior, A Narrow Path to the Interior. And basically the book is a journal of him traveling around to holy sites around medieval Japan. And he would stops and meditates and prays and observes nature and sits in nature and then writes a beautiful haiku about a crane or a grasshopper or whatever the hell they write about. And... Um, and he left it, he would leave it on the door of the shrines, and they would enshrine the poem. And I, when I think on that, I think about what we're missing as humans in contemporary society, where in this, uh, what he represented was a perfect blend of uh, art, nature, and spirituality, all seamlessly interwoven, where there's not, they're not separate from each other. He is observing nature. In nature, he sees spirit. He connects that to the holy places where he is, and then he generates a a beautiful and perfect poem to encapsulate that experience, and then he travels and moves on. Would that we all should be so lucky. Oh, this is perfect for my second question. Okay, act like I didn't ask the first question. Um, When I finished reading your book, and I really enjoyed it, Uh, I recognized a theme that I think is true not only in your book, but in the human condition as well, which is that human beings are always looking for the right answer, the one way, the single thing that will get us from point A to point B. But as you point out in your book, life doesn't work like that. In its most simple essence, we are never talking about less than two things, the ultimate duality of existence. There's no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy. And F. Scott Fitzgerald gets credited with this quote. I don't know if he said it. The key to intelligence is holding two opposite ideas in your head at the same time. And I might update that to the key to flourishing is holding two opposite ideas in your head, heart, and soul at the same time. What do you think? Sign me up. Yeah, that's um, that's really lovely. Um, I don't have much to say on it. What do you think? Well, I think I do think that we get caught up in in the the one and the pattern and like, oh, it should be like this, and it's never like that. And we've talked before. I was on your podcast, and you know, the life is hard. Life is tough, and and things get thrown at us. And how do we learn? when it's dark, to know that there's light, but then conversely, when things are really going well, have that kind of empathy that you can have to understand that it could go all the way in the next moment. Um, and that, that is sort of a, a humble inquiry to, to live as a human being that I think is rare these days. That's very well said. Um, when are you doing your next book? <laughs> it's in my drawer. Um, oh, good. I'll come back and interview you. Great. Um, so... 
Yes, holding uh, contrary ideas in your head at the same time. I think that that, first of all, I want to I define some terms because we're, we're throwing the word spirituality out a lot. And that might mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let's just get clear on what we mean. Because to a lot of folks, spirituality means like spirits and ghosts and seances, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Um, To some people, it means church on Sunday. You know, that's spirituality is from 10 to 12 on Sunday. That's not what I'm talking about. Nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm talking about. So we humans, uh, I believe, and I propose that we have... um, a material existence in our bodies, but that we are, in fact, spiritual beings that are taking a journey in these flesh suits for hopefully, best case scenario, 80 or 90 years, and then they fall away. And then our reality, which is spiritual, that humans have at core, at essence, a spiritual reality, just as real as a corporal reality, that this continues. So what is that? It's your soul, your spirit, it's your light that you bring. It's your heart. It's, it's the divine qualities that you radiate. It's um, uh, love, kindness, compassion, generosity, honesty. Those are the qualities of the divine. Call it God or whatever, just say the divine realm. Those qualities that you mirror forth are part of your of the spirituality. So spiritual questions have to do with the life of the soul and the reality of the soul. Going to one of the things you said about suffering and joy, and no one needs to tell you uh, about suffering and joy. And if people don't know Kelly's story, you should Google him and find out his story. I won't go into it right now, but incredible amounts of suffering and incredible amounts of joy, which I uh, deeply respect. And I, and I love that you drew a link between those two here. Suffering, so in this book, I say that I throw a lot of spiritual ideas at the wall like spaghetti and and see what sticks. So it's like take what you like and leave the rest. One of the ideas I spend a couple pages exploring is suffering, Mm -hmm. since you brought it up, and that sparked in my mind this idea that we don't have discussions about suffering in our culture. We don't talk about its purpose because there is a purpose, mm-hmm. how much the, it sucks yes. and how transformative suffering can be, mm-hmm. uh, potentially positive suffering can be and how kind of embedded in the reality of our human lives suffering is. Of course, the Buddha talks about it all the time. He won't shut up about it. It's like, Buddha, please. <laughs> We Enough get it. with the suffering. Um, but we live in an age with this mental health epidemic with young people that is just devastating, absolutely devastating. The statistics every year get worse and worse around suicides and suicidal ideation, around depression, loneliness. I could go on and on. I won't, I won't bore you. But one of the things that social scientists and psychologists point to continuously is that um, resilience is one of the things that is, has been less, is currently less exercised by the younger generation. Well, a big part of resilience is an understanding of suffering. Mm-hmm. And if parents are trying to eliminate suffering from the equation and not talking about it and trying to just make sure that no one ever suffers, and if kids view suffering as bad, oh, I'm suffering, oh no, this is bad, I can't be suffering, hello, I'm suffering. Um, that there's, 
there, there are deeper, richer spiritual lessons there around this concept that just need to be explored. I don't have the answers necessarily. I have some ideas, but that's one of the contradictory things is that to really experience joy, you do need to experience suffering. I just interviewed uh, for the podcast uh, Jean Twangy, who wrote a book called Generations, about the different generations, and she quotes a Gen X person saying, it's really tough to have the generation above you think there's no trauma and the generation below you think there's nothing but trauma. <laughs> well said. Uh, going off that, I would love... So one of the... And this is a perfect example of joy and suffering at the same time, I think, uh, is when your dad died and there was a ritual you needed to perform and it was sweltering hot and you're in a suit and you need like a bowl? Yes. And there is no bowl. No. There was no bowl to be had in the funeral home in Wenatchee, Washington. (laughs) My father died about six months into COVID, not of COVID, but of heart disease. And um, part of the Baha'i there's a Baha'i ritual of uh, purification of the body, very similar to Judaism, where the body is cleansed and wrapped in linen before it's buried. And so the funeral home knew this, and me and my stepmom, his widow, were there to do the, undertake the ceremony, which is absolutely profound, and I highly recommend it to anyone who loses a loved one to spend some time with the body, to prepare the body to go into the earth, to cleanse it, to pray, to meditate, to cry, to grieve, to be with the body. This is another discussion that contemporary society doesn't undertake is death. We're obsessed with sex. We want to talk about sex constantly. constantly. It's just everywhere. It's just sex, 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 sex. But we don't talk about death at all. It's like, oh, downer, bummer, uh-oh. And so, but in order to do this, we needed to wash the body. And I was like, you know, do you have a bowl? And he brought out like a old Tupperware container. <laughs> And then he, he's like, well, I think I have a, here's a styrofoam bowl. And the, he's like, I, I think I have a, a teapot in the back that you could use. And I was like, oh, my God. The sacred ceremony of washing my dad's body. And, and we, we had to go because the funeral was starting like an hour and 20 minutes. I'm like, jeez. He's got to load the body in the truck and get it out there. Um, <clears throat> so I had to drive to um, a Target and it was a heat wave. It was about 116 degrees. Sweat is pouring down, sweating through my suit. And it's in COVID. I have my mask. And I'm running through this target looking for a bowl. And, and I just really felt my dad's presence with me, just laughing maniacally <laughs> at his, his big shot TV actor son running through a Wenatchee target looking for a glass bowl. Um, but finally, a bowl was had. And, you know... one of the um, uh, most profound experiences happened on that day in the cleansing of the body where I just had such a profound realization of, oh, this is not my father. This is the vessel that carried my father. But this is not the reality of my father. A thousand percent. Sorry? A thousand percent. That was exactly the thing that I clued in on. You had that same... Yeah. yeah. I lost my daughter uh, to cancer about four years ago. She was 17. And um, we talked about this. And that was also the experience of, oh, no, she's not there. Yeah. And so, so I was not mourning 
the body. Right. And, and, and she was already somewhere different. Yes, exactly. But she was somewhere. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, I know that to be true. And you say, thank you, body. Yeah. You know, thanks for what you did. Right. Um, in my dad's case, he was fortunate. He got 79 years in his. But um, th- that's a really profound realization. That also kind of sparked this mm-hmm. chapter called Death and How to Live It, where I try and undertake a, a, a deep exploration of the concept of death and look at it from a lot of different religious standpoints and spiritual belief systems and, um, and, and have some laughs along the way. Well, it's a little weird that we don't talk to it, about it because it's going to happen to all of us. <laughs> and it happens to all of us. And it's interesting. So my last question ties into this, which is I've been blown away by this c- quote. And, and you don't, I don't think you reference it in the book. Uh, it's by Scott Barry Kaufman and Jordan Feingold, who have a terrific book called Choose Growth. But it's uh, by Irvin Yalom, who's a sort of famed psychiatrist. And he says, sooner or later, you have to give up the hope for a better past. Wow. That's really profound. Isn't that killer? Yeah. That kind of that stumped me. What, is, what does that mean to you? It means be present. It means be fiercely here in the moment. We can't fix that thing. And then if we're imagining whatever this future might be, you're not here. We're not here. And, and when we are here, and this is the thing I know from my field of improvisers, so when you're on stage and you have no script, uh, what you know if the person is trained is their job is to save you and your job is to save them. And that's an incredible feeling. And if we could bring that amount of attention into our moment-to-moment daily interactions, I just don't think we'd be such jerks. Amen. Um, Before we went on stage, Kelly turned to me and said, I got your back. And then let us know that that at Second City is what they say before you go on stage to perform. And you even say it before a staff meeting and you say it (laughs) at a business conference. And, um, but that idea of, I got your back being um, kind of a, a, a greeting, you know, mm. a signifier is so profound. And going off that, the, um, what I try and build to in the book is talking about, you know, like I said, spiritual spaghetti thrown against the wall. And we talk about death and God and consciousness and life and the meaning of life and, and, and everything like that. And that's all fun. And then we talk about religion and what's the point of religion? Why have religion? I invent a new religion um, called uh, Soul Boom, the religion, trademark. 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 Um, and, um, and then, but, you know, really what I'm building toward is exactly what you're talking about there, um, which is, I would say I got your back is a sign of a spiritual tool, mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, linking compassion and service, let's say. Yeah. And uh, what if our political system was run on an engine of compassion and service one to another? And, and there's, I understand there's guffaws and, and everything like that, and there should be, and I, and I get that. And I also imagine there's some eye rolls of like, well, that's not going to happen. And, 
And, you know, maybe something a little more cataclysmic needs to happen in order for something like that to be put into practice. But I do believe that it can happen. Sure. At the best of humanity, in great times of great tragedy, after 9-11, you know, early on in the COVID crisis, sometimes in times of war, people bond together, set aside their differences, help one another with, with great sensitivity and compassion. And how then do you take that that juice and instill it into the mechanism uh, and the systematization of how a society works. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm headed. Um, and um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, in the marketing materials, the people were promised Kung Fu. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're, I think probably the same age. I love that show so much. And I love the fact that you're like, it's so slow. And it is so slow. And there's all these flashbacks. But I don't know. I, and, and I don't know if it was the sort of searcher in me. But I, I found it profound. And you did too. And, I think, and we're going to talk about Star Trek too right after. But I think, I think those two... I think mean, it comes out of your childhood. So, of course, there's that sort of sense memory of something that you, you know, had. But also... Um, it was saying something at a certain time that still resonates today. Plus, you know, he would kick people's ass. Yeah. Yeah, Kung Fu. Um, I spent so m- I can't tell you how many hours I spent staring at those episodes, pondering them, and uh, it just meant the world to me. And Star Trek Two, my two favorite shows of the 70s, although I'm staying down on the Gold Coast, and that reminds me of Bob Newhart, uh, Chicago native. Also a great show. <laughs> also one of my favorite shows mm-hmm. of the 70s. But, um, yeah, so Kung Fu is, for those who don't know, is about Kwai Chang Kane, uh, a Shaolin monk and uh, martial artist and uh, philosopher um, who's kicked out of his monastery and goes on a quest to find his brother, in the 1880s uh, in the Old West in the cowboy days. So here you have this incredibly wise, <coughs> gentle soul filled with Eastern wisdom navigating this really racist world uh, that's aggressive and angry and kind of overwhelming and he bails people out and he teaches little beautiful lessons and koans as he goes through his day and he remembers what his kung fu masters taught him back in the monastery and shares that and then occasionally there's some some kick-ass fights the the um uh the the point that i draw about kung fu is that this is one half of the spiritual journey we're all quite chang kane in some way shape and form we're all moving through our lives, taking our wisdom with us, navigating all kinds of evils, racism and sexism and, and materialism and, uh, and hyper-aggression. I mean, nowadays people pull in the wrong driveway and they get shot. Um, that really wasn't happening five years ago. And we see this rapid deterioration. And we're all on that journey. And so there are spiritual tools that we call on to help us navigate it, to become more... Um, uh, serene uh, to help control our anxiety to give us focus meaning uh, wisdom to share love profound deep love so (coughs) it's a perfect metaphor really for that personal spiritual journey 
And I think, too, with Star Trek is this idea that science doesn't need to be the enemy of art and life and religion. And they're always pitted against each other. Right. Which is so ridiculous because they're, you know, they're married. It's the king of false dichotomies that uh, you could talk about spirituality and someone says, well, I believe in science. It's like, well, I, I also believe in science. And the two, the two are not at odds. Um, they're both ways of understanding reality. They're both ways of understanding existence. Science is a perfect, you know, way to test the reality of physical reality, um, through proof, through, through evidence, and, um, you know, repetition of experiments, etc. And, and spirituality is a way to prove the truth of, of being alive, of the experience of being alive. And of course, the greatest mystery of all that science has no idea even remotely how to begin to understand, which is consciousness yep. itself, uh, one of my favorite topics. So Star Trek, as opposed to Kung Fu, is about humanity after a terrible conflagration of World War III where you, it's, you have to dig a little bit to kind of find this backstory, but humanity on planet Earth has built the kingdom of God on Earth. It has solved income inequality. There's no more injustice. There's no more racism. Remember, the first interracial kiss on national television happened on an episode of Star Trek. I think it was 1967, Half the southern TV stations wouldn't broadcast it. It was, uh, it was revolutionary. <clears throat> and to the people of Star Trek, humanity, seeking out strange new life and new civilizations, it was just another day at the office that someone of different races would kiss. There are humans. We're all human beings. These are, those were two exceptionally good-looking human beings. Yes. Um, and... Uh, but all of these things have been solved. And, and so then uh, with the advent technology helping us solve those problems, then we can go out and explore and bring our wisdom and maturity and to the other people and races that we find out there and then learn from them about their wisdom and their maturity and seek to create ever-widening unified federations. We have the Federation on planet Earth, but then, you know, we work with the Romulans and, and whomever on all of the, uh, all those fun adventures. So that's the other part of the spiritual path mm-hmm. that people don't think about quite as much. And I would challenge the reader and the, the viewer to think about a little bit more about how can we, like we talked about politics, right? And like, I got your back. How can we find spiritual tools that can be transformative to us as a society that can help humanity with its inevitable maturation because uh, we are going to mature. How much do we suffer before we mature? It's like a teenager. I got a teenage kid. He's 18 and a half. Dear Lord. Um, <laughs> he, um, you know, how, how hard does it get for a teenager? Some of them need to go to rehab in Utah, you know, and move boulders and you know uh, I was just on Drew Barrymore's show the other day and thinking back on her life and how she transformed that suffering of her teenage years into like this incredible enterprise uplifting and telling stories and connecting people and she has such a beautiful energy and uh, everyone loves Drew Barrymore she's just kind of light incarnate you know and um, humanity can 
have the same fate as Drew Barrymore. That's... Is that... Is I just... For the first time, I connected the human race with Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore. This is all about You're Drew Barrymore. Wow. Um, it's interesting. I interviewed uh, Patrick House, who is a neuroscientist, uh, who has a book on conscious, uh, uh, consciousness, which we don't understand. Scientists, they, they don't. But uh, in, in looking around and trying to figure out what it might be, uh, he made a discovery, uh, which is there are no known cases of schizophrenia in people who are born blind. Whoa. Right? How about that? Yeah. And, and sort of wondering, like, okay, so is, does the, do these things have to do with you lose one sense, maybe you're busy with other, or you're just distracted and that, that's not going to come up? Um, and, and, and I think the, the... Or does the visual interactivity between the eye and the cerebral cortex, you know, affect the area that's near the schizophrenic activity? I don't right, know. because, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, we all have things in terms of, like, feeling presences near us or, you know, at different times. Or, uh, another author I interviewed uh, talked about that, that idea when you... Have you ever had that thing where you wake up and you can't move? You know, Right. And often there's a feeling of a malevolent person maybe nearby. Uh, that's very, very, very common uh, in a book. And he interviews people who, who do have schizophrenia. I had that for, for years as a teenager, for real. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I was very sure, <laughs> and what it is, it's quite simple. When you dream, there's like chemicals that go out and make your body kind of paralyzed so that you don't act out your dreams. You know, sometimes you're sleeping next to someone and then they have a dream and they... They punch you, and they're like, no, Margaret, stop it, whatever. But we'd all be thrashing like puppies if, you know, if that were the case. But then if you wake up before your body has said, okay, dream over, there's that space where you're kind of in your body, and it's not moving. But I always thought I had a vision as a teenager that I was being kind of held in a, by aliens. It was an alien mm-hmm. I, I perceived it as aliens putting like a locking device on my body. It's interesting the way we talked a little bit about this because we're both fans of Annie Murphy Paul, who wrote a terrific book called The Extended Mind. And her theory in the book is that our metaphors for thinking are wrong. Our brain is not a computer. Our brain operates differently when it's outside as opposed to when it's inside, whereas a computer doesn't. And also that our body is sending us messages all along, and there's ideas about gesture, which I think are interesting in terms of being an actor. Um, but I know this for, from my, myself, too, and going through... I did EMDR uh, uh, therapy. Yeah, I've done that as well. It's great. Because um, I was having a difficulty driving on highways. And one of the things that would happen is I get, my body would get super tense when trucks would go by. And then I, read, I was reading Annie's book, and I decided to try something, which is every time a semi would start to go by, I'd smile. Wow. And it worked. Because it is very hard to be afraid when you're smiling. And you picked up a lot of truckers along the way. <laughs> I scored so huge in the trucker community. This is a perfect segue uh, to you. That was pretty good. <laughs> This is, is good. Thank you. It's going to get better. <clears throat> uh, when you tried to sell uh, a TV show about God. Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by the question of God and the idea with God. That was something I really struggled with for like 10 years. And a lot of people kind of say, ah, I struggle with God. I don't know. You know, 
there are definitely, I'm sure there are people here and there are a lot of people who are just dyed in the wool atheists or like there is no God. But I think most people are kind of like, I have a vague sense that there might be something more than just matter and energy, but I don't know what that is. It's certainly not an old man on a cloud with a beard, but I don't know how that works in my life. And is God really going to give me a good parking space if I pray to him? And <laughs> or is it a him or her or it or what? You know. And so I uh, created and pitched a TV show called The Notorious God, um, <laughs> where we were going to explore the question of God in different cultures. You know, go with pygmies in Africa. Look at AI versions of God and and atheists and um, uh, and talk to you know all kinds of thinkers about what does God mean in the modern world and and how what relevance does the concept have and we were rejected everywhere and my favorite note we received from a couple of places that it's the topic was too controversial. <laughs> Netflix said that God was too controversial to have a TV show. But you can have a TV show where it's like one-legged people are dating each other and throwing garbage yeah. at each other. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, woo! Um, one-legged love, you know, and... Um, you, to be you, fair, it's a good show. Yeah. Yeah. But it... I mean, you, you can have, you know, you can have countless movies where the body count is in the thousands of people just getting their faces blown off with guns, but you, it's too controversial to talk about God. So uh, I do a deep dive in this book. It's my longest chapter. Um, and uh, what did you, what did you think? What did you come away with out of that chapter? What did that spark for you? Well, I wanted to see the series. Um, <laughs> But but also, I mean, you know, it's all wrapped up in your pilgrimages. It's the sacred spaces, I think, is a really important thing. Um, the idea of creating ritual. I know for myself, so, you know, lapsed Catholic um, and someone who's always considered themselves sort of spiritual. And then when Nora got sick and then died, and, and one goes searching, right, for, for what they're going to find. And I found myself creating our own little rituals. And I found so, you know, at Christmas, there's a little tin um, uh, uh, lantern that she made that we just light and we keep out and it's there. Um, and there's other sort of little things that we do that, that to me are, are spiritual and religious and seem to be a little bit of a search for, for God, for her, because I think that's all sort of wrapped up in, in its own thing. Um, so, you know, I... I, I was a little jealous of you, especially in terms of having the root faith, the Baha'i faith, which I know because I grew up on the North Shore, I know from the beautiful temple and going to a wedding there, you know, or two, but not in terms of having a, a thing that I can draw on. And I read the same, a lot of the same books you do and, and recognize that they're, you know, have I replaced all that with, the, you know, the cult of improv? Have I replaced that with, you know, where, where I go to work? And in some, in some ways, yes, but also we need other spaces as well. So, you know, I'm searching. Well, I, I, love, I love the idea of improv as God. That's interesting. Because I do talk in the chapter about how... Um, in the Native American tradition, which really informed my kind of concept of a higher power, 
And the Lakota tradition of Wakantanka, which means the great mystery, God is not any kind of being. It isn't any kind of, I don't know what other word to use besides, it's not a, it's not a guy, it's not a dude, it's not a, it's not a, a creature, it's not a, a, a being among other beings, um, as David Bentley Hart, uh, the theologian, would say. Like, it's far more of like a force that's uh, wedded with nature. Mm-hmm. So when you're in the trees and you hear the wind and you see the light and you feel the beauty... Like, that's Wakantanka. That's the great mystery. You're at one with the great mystery. Yeah. And the, the great mystery of the seven directions, north, south, east, west, up, down, and the seventh direction, inside, going, turning inside. So this exploring that concept allowed me to think about God in some very new ways, as, as opposed to a more powerful being among other beings, kind of like a Marvel superhero. Um, to think about it as this kind of force. But then I draw an analogy between, is there really any difference between beauty and God, hmm. let's say, or music and God, or art and God? And, and, and in that sense, I think improv is, can be certainly divine. I've done very little of it, believe, believe it or not. I mean, I improvised a lot on uh, The Office, but... Um, this and you, but there is a certain there is a. I think why people get so addicted to it is there is there is an absolute magic in it when mm-hmm. there's two people and a scenario and then some no one has planned it and just somehow out of thin air something is there's a little thread and then it's pulled and it's pulled and all of a sudden a whole world is created and it's delightful and strange and and visceral and exciting and you're watching these two master artists you know do that delicate dance and that is a great mystery in itself it's impossible how the hell did they do that you know what i mean like no one was leading no one was following it would just kind of like emanated from the air and that is uh and that is the divine presence there's a, a Rick Thomas who's a teacher. Colbert loves this phrase, and I do too. Uh, he talks about you have to learn to fall into the crack in the game. And the idea there is that there is going to be what someone might consider a mistake, and that is ac- absolutely the best opportunity. And we, we teach to see all obstacles as gifts. That's amazing. That's, that's great. The, um, I worked with these crazy Romanian directors a couple of times in New York and when I was doing theater and my great teacher, Paul Walker from NYU, he would um, talk about working with the Romanians because he went and worked with the Romanians. It was this, they have this incredible theater tradition in Romania and they would be rehearsing Chekhov plays for like nine months and they'd be running them hoping for a mistake praying for a mistake and they they would love it when a mistake happened and then they would shift everything to incorporate if someone tripped on the chair going by and they weren't supposed to oh my god stop the presses this is great that's perfect that's how Chekhov would have loved it and then they incorporate the whole storytelling and the person uh, tripping on on the chair and, and they these Romanians are very dark, dour, <laughs> chain-smoking. I worked with Liviu Chule, who used to run the National Theater of Romania on a, several plays, and he would quit smoking, and his wife Olga was sitting in the audience, like making sure he didn't smoke. 
And then he wasn't smoking, so he'd chew the nicotine gum. But then once we got to, like, tech and dress and, like, run-throughs, then he'd be smoking and chewing the gum. <laughs> and scowling. But when, when a beautiful mistake happened, then they would light up like children. I love it. Uh, so in a few minutes, we're going to come to you for questions. So have those prepared, and that'll be a raised hand thing, and we have folks who come around. Um, so are you... How real is this soul boom as religion thing? Because you, you're a little cheeky about it, but you're not. Well, first of all, is it trademarked? Can you do that? <laughs> yes, you can do that. Is there like an office to trademark something? No one out there do it right now, because they have phones where they could do that right now. There's, app, there's an app for that? There's an app for that. I haven't trademarked it, but I should. You haven't? No. It says TM in the book. I know. I've got to write my assistant. So, yeah, no, you got to send an email. Please trademark Soul Boom. Uh, trademark Soul Boom, the religion. <laughs> Period. Figure it out. <laughs> Great. I mean, you know, the Bible happened, it's a religion. I know it came after. The Bible? Yeah. Yeah, the, the Bible is like 5,000 years of history. What do you mean? Well, you got Soul Boom. I mean, that's what... You oh, know. it's a book. Yeah, it's yeah a it book. took me three years. The, um, <laughs> which is pretty long. So, yeah, so in Soul Boom, the religion, uh, what I wanted to do is... Um, here's a bold statement, I'm going to say, here in liberal, secular Chicago, I'm going to say that humanity has truly lost something by its kind of whole cloth jettisoning of religion. I know, don't hit me with eggs and oranges and, and hot dogs. The um, Without ketchup. Chicago negative, yeah. I'm not suggesting that people find necessarily an existing religion and go join it. Obviously, religions have been such part and parcel of some of the worst tragedies and traumas and violence in human history, and they can be a source of great division. Uh, Abdu'l-Bahá, who's the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, he says, if religion be a a source of disunity, it were better that there were no religion. Mm -hmm. So here's the founder of a religion saying, if religion causes disunity, it's better that there's no religion. So completely understand why there's no religion for a large part, especially in kind of secular America. Completely get it. That being said, if you want to look at data points on happiness and well-being, people who are members of faith communities are happier and they live longer. So I got a woot-woot from one religious person. (laughs) In the front row. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Methodist baby. Um, So, uh, you can, you can, don't believe me, you can just look up the data on it, and it's absolutely true, you know, in this time of great mental crisis. And, but we have, we have lost something. What does religion give us? Um, it, and, and what does religion give us that politics can't give us? Um, I guess politics, well, that's a whole other, kind of, I don't want to get into that. But what does religion give us? It gives us community. Transcendence, 
a shared purpose, uh, an idea that we are more than just kind of fleshy beings and that our life has more resonance to it than simply seeking pleasure and comfort and then dying. Um, service to others. These are some, I go into the 10 universal concepts of all the religions because there's a great deal that binds every religion. As, as different as Buddhism and Islam might appear on the surface, um, if you dig deeper and look at the underpinnings of them, you see these universe, universalities. So Solboom takes those 10 universalities and then creates a, a, several other ones. Uh, for instance, uh, putting the arts front and center, which so many religious faiths have done to such great effect through human history. Um, the elimination of clergy. We don't need clergy anymore. We don't need any priests or mullahs or gurus anymore. Um, I, there's more I, I can't remember right now, but the, and putting service front and center, serving the poor, uh, that there are amazing concepts that have been uh, given to us by religion and, and the way that religion unites us and connects us uh, can be really transformative. And I have a favorite, uh, that there will be no soul boom without potlucks. Potlucks. Crucial. They're, they're crucial mandatory. Absolutely. Absolutely. What yes. would you bring to a potluck? My dad made one casserole and it was cream of mushroom soup on the bottom. Yeah. Oh, that's old school. Tater tots. <laughs> bacon crumbles. Oh, God. And cheddar cheese. My arteries that, are wow, clogging by hearing that. The Midwestern. My dad was born in Downers Grove, Illinois. Yeah. That's really the saddest name. Downers, Downers Grove. Downers Grove. I wished we lived in Morton. I mean, it's, it's a much better grove. It's such an obvious metaphor. It's surprised Arthur Miller didn't use it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Willie Lowman. I mean, come on. Yeah. This yeah. is on the nose, Arthur. Yeah. Well said. All right. Uh, why don't we come to the audience for some questions right now? Do we get th- yeah, I see a couple hands right here. Thank you for raising your hands, everybody. If you have questions, please raise your hand and we'll come around to you. Please keep your comments to questions. First question right here in the front. Hello, thank you. Uh, I'm a current Second City student uh, with lots of grief and trauma, and I find there's a distancing effect with grief. So I want to know, how does one honor suffering uh, in the work as artists without turning off audiences? Oh, all right. You take that. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me just, I'll give you, give you an example. Uh, so, so I think it, it, a lot of it is context and balance. You know, like people are coming to Second City to laugh. But they also are coming to Second City. The reason they keep coming to Second City is because they find truth. So you've got to give them that as well. Uh, we were doing a show called South Side of Heaven. And this was a time at Second City... Uh, where there was a lot of grief. A lot of people were... Pa- the founders were all passing away, uh, sort of one after another. I mean, my dad passed away, uh, and, and a, lot, a lot of this is going on. And one of the actors, uh, Edgar Blackman, uh, his wife had had a miscarriage. Uh, 
and he wanted to do a scene with Sam Richardson, uh, and he did it. Uh, and it was him visiting his son in heaven. And he did it every night. And it was sort of his therapy. And I don't know that it mattered that the audience, I don't, they didn't know there was, they didn't know the real thing that happened. They knew something happened. And that was a little moment of truth. So I think you find your places. And that was in an otherwise ridiculously funny show, a joyous show. Um, but I think that, you know, what makes, I, I think this is true of The Office as well. And I don't know if I told you this, but one of the shows when Nora was in the hospital, we watched the entire Office from beginning to end. Uh, and part of it was finding those moments of like, it wasn't just there for laughs. It was also there for like the human condition. So, I mean, I think, I think you find it. Yeah. Your next question is down in the front on the other side. Uh, it, the, the difference between science and um, religion, I think those two clashing, as you said, can always be, one seems like it's always battling the other. And I feel like the marriage between science and all the different kinds of religion really gives the balance of what we're missing. And what would you say for someone that maybe everything's based in science, so all the lack of religion, how would you kind of tip the scales? Right, because I feel like religion answers all the questions that we can't answer with science and vice versa. So how could you kind of tip the scales back to spirituality? Great question. What's your name? Renee. Renee, thank you so much. Beautiful question. And, um, and a really important conversation. Uh, I talk about how much I love atheists in the book. I have a whole kind of mini chapter on um, how amazing atheists are because atheists always challenge the existing order and say, like, I'm not going to buy anything unless you prove it to me. And that's a great way to be in the world, right? So the, the way that I would say that we can, you know, help in the conversation of bringing science and religion together, I guess the first thing that popped into my mind was love. Um, you, I have experienced, I'm sure everyone in this room has, I have experienced profound love in my life with my wife and my son, especially my father, but many other family members and, and friends and, and experiences and whatnot. You know, my, when my son was born, he almost died. It was in the hallway of a hospital in Van Nuys, California, and there was blood and it was three in the morning. It was awful. And, uh, and then, but he was saved and then he was put immediately in my arms and I held this, little being in my arms and it was so profound and the the kind of love you have as a parent is um pretty extraordinary uh no matter how much you love your partner parent parental love has kind of instinctually binds you on a whole other level and i would say like you know science can't prove that i loved him when i held him in that hallway you could do a brain scan. My brain would light up, I'm sure, in certain ways. But it would probably also light up in similar ways if I was eating Pop-Tarts. You know? So... Which is a different kind of love. That is a profound love. <laughs> um, between, yeah, middle-aged white guys and Pop-Tarts. Um, and so love is uh, something that is undefinable, it's unknowable, but yet we, 
know it to be true, right? We, it, very few people, I think, even of the kind of militant atheist set would say like, well, love is just a, sim- it's a series of neurochemical impulses in my brain. And we'll find it eventually on a brain scan. We'll find exactly where love lives and it's there to propagate the species. Because if I don't love my mate and then I don't procreate and I don't, if I don't love my children, then the species doesn't continue on. Like, I think there's very few people who kind of draw the line at that. That is where love is. So love is, is an interesting uh, way to experience the spiritual, even if you struggle with spirituality, I imagine there's a lot of people out there, oh, spirituality, oh, I don't know. But, but love is, is, is the most powerful force in the universe. It's the most kind of accessible divine energy uh, that any and all of us can access at any time. So. We have a woman in an Illuminati t-shirt in the front row here at some point at some point we also have a microphone in the balcony too so balcony people also can raise their hands our next question is also right here no they can't <laughs> they came late yeah a lot of people came late they came late and they sat in the front row so how do you figure that out but I'm, I'm a Chicago actor and I wanted to comment about something you came up early in the dialogue about uh, improving the past. It makes me think of the Republican congressman in upstate New York who won an election as a congressman, and suddenly they check his credentials. It turns out he never worked for McKinsey, and he never worked for IBM. He's an elected official in upstate New York, and they should get rid of him but because the margin of victory is only a few votes in different parts of the country, he's allowed to stay in Congress by somebody. So where does our credentials go out the window with something like that? Improving your resume, is that improving, polishing your resume, putting in you got a PhD, but it only means post-hole digger. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Greatest question ever. Greatest question ever. Thank you, sir. Is it yes. okay? Can you take one from the balcony? Will you? What? They got okay, a question. We'll the let the balcony go. Okay. <laughs> what would Dwayne Schrute think about something? He would think it's a bunch of poppycock. Um. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, um, I've been working on a, uh, a lecture to give to corporations about kind of Dwight versus Rain um, in terms of uh, uh, the, the quest for well-being, Dwight versus Rain. And uh, like the first thing I talk about, I show some clips of Dwight talking about the shroots and his love of the shroots, and the shroots produce very thirsty babies, and I have 27 cousins, each one better than the last, and um, so many I'm hearing Dwight quotes getting thrown. And, um, and so for, for Dwight, his kind of family is the shroots, right? And for me, like family, we can draw the family 
further than just our biological family? And how do we, how do we kind of, with spiritual tools, ever increase our family size from our biological family to then our cul-de-sac to our extended family, to our community, to our neighborhood in Chicago, to Chicago itself, to the Midwest, to North America, to, to planet Earth, so that we can have an ever greater sense of what uh, family means. So that would, I, I would view uh, Dwight's viewpoint on spirituality as being um, uh, a, a limited and immature, but there'd also be a lot of fun things to to glean from it. I feel like Rain has a lot of empathy for Dwight, and I don't think Dwight gives a shit about you. (laughs) Dwight could and would kick the shit out of me. That's true. Okay. (laughs) This guy with his sweater and glasses and his slip-ons. Yeah, what's with the hat? And his his jaunty cap. (laughs) Your next question is about in the center... Hi, Rain. Big fan. Um, My question for you is regarding religion, because I know you've gone on long tangents about religion, often um, rooting from different countries and places and all around the world, which is honestly impressive. But obviously there's a line drawn between practicing religion to writing about religion. And what made you pass that line? I'm sorry, pass the line? What? Cross the line. How did you get to the point of um, deciding to write about religion? Yeah, you went because you, you practice, right? Right. But then making that decision like, no, I'm going to chronicle. I'm going to write. I'm going to make this intentional choice yeah. now to take my practice and turn that into... And I wouldn't call this a manifesto. I think that's a, a weird term for this. But it is... I don't know. It defies description, which is probably the greatest compliment I could give you with regard to a book uh, these days. Well... I, what I tried to do in the book, and this is a sneak peek, you guys. Shh. Don't tell anyone at any of the other book conferences I'm going to. Um, I loosen them up with questions about the soul and the meaning of life and God. And then I get to my deeper thesis, which has to do with religion and social transformation, which is kind of the second half of the book, but it's kind of the reason I wrote the book. Um, Again, I feel... I'll get really real with you guys, okay? I think the world is really, really messed up right now. I think it's getting worse and darker and more disunified as, as month by month. Um, and the stakes are really high. And I think people are much more open to spiritual ideas and exploration now than they were even five years ago or even seven years ago. I think, like, it was kind of during the Clinton years and the Obama years. Everyone was like, yeah. Like, we did it. It's all great. Like, There's no racism anymore. Racism's fixed, you we guys. Did we did it. Income inequality's fixed. And, you know, this kind of naive blindness to, like, we had some really, you know, progressive leaders, and we thought that that was the answer. But if the system itself is so corrupt and... Um, uh, and, and, and just doesn't, doesn't work, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of progressive leaders we elect because the political system itself is so uh, off base. So 
why did I go into religion? Because I think there are some things that we can learn from religion that we can apply to make the world a better place. And this isn't just like, it's not an intellectual era exercise, and it's not an airy-fairy, kind of hippy-dippy, oh, wouldn't it be nice to love one another kind of exercise? It's like, no, we need to change existing systems before we all die. And the way to change them is to bring a spiritual component, a wise, deep kind of reservoir of human wisdom that has been around for 5,000 years, starting with the Upanishads, and we can bring that wisdom to bear on existing systems, then we can achieve real social transformation. So I think the stakes are high. We have time for one more question, and it's Rain's choice. (laughs) Right in the front here. Oh, this better be good. (laughs) All the pressure is on. I feel all the pressure. Sensei is senpai. I wore the Illuminati shirt for you. I thought you would enjoy it. My question is, so you mentioned, this is a weird question. You, You mentioned aliens earlier. Do you believe in aliens? 100% I believe in aliens. Thank you for asking that. How could you not believe in aliens? I mean, I've always believed that there are aliens. And I remember the 70s. Do you remember the 70s? Uh, Loosely. (laughs) I remember them very well. And people who believed in UFOs in the 70s were like, cuckoo. (laughs) And nowadays, if like you look at the evidence around UFOs, um, what are they called? Aerial phenomenon? UAPs? Um, if you don't believe that there's some kind of alien life at work and technology at work in these, I mean, you just have to look at the videotapes and the, and the, the interviews with these army generals, you know, and pilots, like really sober, you know, these are not cuckoo guys, you know, with tinfoil hats living in Roswell. These are like, you know... Uh, a hundred percent I do. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with all of these aliens buzzing about and all their different ships. I speculate on it in the book in a, in a fun way. And one of the things I do is I start a conversation between two aliens observing planet Earth and human activity on planet Earth. Because I think if you, if you take the telescope and, and raise it up to a few thousand feet... Um, a few tens of thousands of feet and look down at planet Earth and the decisions that we're making, the choices that we're making collectively, it's really uh, head-scratching. It's really eyebrow-raising some of the things that we are choosing to do and the ways that we're choosing to live our lives. Uh, but how, how best to kind of summarize that than through the eyes of, of the alien looking at the human species? When you say, thoughts on that? <laughs> I am pro-alien. Because <laughs> I think that's a safe choice. They come down here. I mean, they're bad. It's like, well, I thought, I thought I was, they were going to be good, and they aren't. But if they're good, you're pro-alien. All right. <laughs> what do you think, sir? <laughs> Aliens? Yeah? And scene. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>